Hi, this is P. Craig Russell, uh, artist, uh, scripter to the Neil Gaiman Norse mythology uh, series that's uh, in progress right now. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Citizens of the Republic of Spoilerverse, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Cregan. That is the incomparable Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's P. Craig Russell. Yeah, it is. And he comes on to talk about his new book, Norse Mythology from Dark Horse, where he takes uh, nice. Neil Gaiman's book, Norse Mythology, and, and creates it into a, a graphic novel. And the first volume of that comes out in March, March 23rd to be exact. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, it looks check it out. phenomenal. Because that guy I'm, is an amazing artist. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, his artwork is by, it's just, it's it's not simplistic, but it has right. like um, simplistic coloring to it. But it's, it's actually not, it's funny because when you say things are simplistic and they look good, they're actually not simplistic. It's, right. it's really complicated to do like less detailed colors and make it look detailed. Well, art, well, okay, well I hate when you say art because art encompasses so much. Um, but artists, especially ones that draw, that has the ability to make something look simple or something that, that looks simple but is tremendous. It's the same thing like with music where you hear something that it seems sounds so simple, but then at the end of the day, they're not simple. And I think that's right. the genius of people is taking something that is – I keep saying simple, but it's the only way to, to, to put it – and then or basic even – and just making it to where you're like, you're flabbergasted at how beautiful it is. Right, exactly. I, I think that's why uh, Art Nouveau style is like it's it's very flat colored, but it's so intricate in the design work. Right, right. Like you take Tim Vigil, who yeah. is hyper, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Detailed. Hyper detailed? Yeah. Hyper detailed. And then you take P. Craig Russell. They're almost two different ends of this tr- spectrum and show you how awesome each side is. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, it's the details in Russell's. It's what it's what he doesn't show. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Well, instead of listening to us, why don't we why don't we just get into this and listen to P. Craig Russell in his own words? Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic. P. Craig Russell. How's it going, sir? 
Just fine, thank you. Even better than usual right now. Oh, really? What is that? I can, well, uh, two hours ago, I finished uh, my uh, work on Ragnarok that I've been working on for about the last 10 weeks, seven days a week from breakfast to bedtime. And I put it to bed two hours ago. So that's feeling pretty good. Oh, that's incredible. Is this, what is this going to be for? You said Ragnarok. Is that for the, the Norse mythology series or something else? Yeah, no, that's for the Norse mythology. I'm doing the last story in the series, which is a 34-page story that covers Ragnarok. And it's a little different from the other stories in the series in that Neil, Neil Gaiman, who wrote the Norse mythology book that we're adapting, told the stories as stories that have happened, and they're done in that, that voice. Ragnarok is it's like the book of Revelations, just talking about things that will happen. And it's more a series of tableau, almost, rather than a, a, th- a narrative through line. It's just one event after another that's going to happen. There is some narrative sort of tissue that there are scenes that happen, but it's just a different feel from uh, the rest of the stories. There's a lot of humor in the rest of the stories, and there's no humor in Ragnarok. Well, that's so you're actually going to be bookending the series because you did the first story in the series, um, Art and Story, and you'll be doing the last? Right. I did the uh, the 10-page introduction that came out on free comic book day and then the first six-page chapter in issue one. And I originally intended to bookend it just doing that 10-page intro, which matches up Neil's introduction to the stories in the book and, and the final story. But we couldn't get the artist we wanted for the first six-page story, which would have been Charles Vesp. I wanted Charles because of the tree. It's just the first page is a giant tree, and who does trees better uh, than Charles? But he decided he'd actually done this material in a story about 20 years ago. And so I just said, well, I can do trees. I'll do the tree myself (laughs) and that six-page intro. So altogether, that's 50 pages of original art plus 18 covers that I'm doing for the series. And then there's about 300 and... 20 pages being done by various other artists. Oh, so the North Mythology series goes on for 18 issues, or is this yes. multiple co- Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I, I love the series. I've been um, reading North, Myth- um, North Mythology. Obviously, the, the last three issues are the ones that have been released so far. It's an incredibly well-done series. I mean, the art is quality. The, the writing is fantastic. I mean, you have Jerry Ordway on it as well. Mike Manola does a story as well. That's yes. A, you have a, and um, obviously, it's overseen, I guess, by Neil Gaiman and... And you as well. I mean, this is that's a hell of a lineup you guys have for this. Well, it was yeah, it was a real challenge assembling all the artists that we would be working with. Some of them were new names to me that were suggested by our editor Daniel Chabon. Uh, artists like David Rubin and Piotr Kowalski were new to me, and I just love their work. And David Rubin has been an, an especial asset to the series as he had his one story to do, which was a sizable piece. I forget the number of pages. Some of these stories are 40 pages long. Others are as short as six. But Michael Oming was scheduled to do uh, a a two-issue series in the third arc, and he had to drop out for personal reasons. And David Rubin stepped in and did his story. So he's doing, I don't know the total page number, maybe like 50 or 60, maybe about 50 pages. And he's done that story already ahead of many other artists or several other artists in the series. So he's been great to work with. Everyone involved, Jill Thompson has finished her 
26 page story, all in original watercolor. It's just beautiful. It's a funny story. And with Thor in drag, uh, (laughs) very particular reasons, it's called uh, Freya's unusual or wedding. And it's a big mad wedding scene as, as uh, Thor disguised as the bride waiting to strike. Uh, So she hit the perfect note for that. And uh, Mark Buckingham is working on his story. Uh, He's just sent some pencils over today through email that are just gorgeous. Then he'll be starting to ink pretty soon. Galen Showman, who's lettering the entire book, has already started on his story, which is The Death of Loki, which just precedes mine. So as soon as he gets my lettering finished, he just picked up the last 20 pages of that on Sunday. He'll get back to working on the the finished art for his 26-page story. So it's, it's a lot, lot of involvement of people and, and mailing back and forth and trying to keep all of the costumes and designs consistent, which we have our associate editor, Chuck Howitt, bless his heart, is coordinating everyone's designs and getting them into one sort of place we can all look at and keep things consistent. I must admit, that is one thing that I do love about the Norse mythology series that I've been reading so far. It really does have a beautiful look to it. it. It looks unlike, I think, almost any other comic book on the market right now, that it actually appears like actual art. Like you would almost see each image almost, you would see it in like a gallery almost. <laughs> well, I, I think the one thing that keeps it is sort of a consistency in spite of the wide variety of artistic styles that, that you're going to see even more so, uh, like like David Rubens and, and Joel Thompson's, they're so different from Jerry Ordway or myself, is that the layout style and the, the page design remains consistent because I'm doing that. 300, altogether, it's about 372 pages. And once I got all of those pages laid out and the lettering design and, and all of that off to the artist, then I could start my own story. But I think that does keep it consistent. And another element, I think, is that how spare the script is. And that's by necessity. And I've taken that as a personal challenge in that part of our contractual agreement with the publisher of of the novel, of Neil's novel, is that we only use 20% of the original text. So I've taken that as a, a challenge. I mean, I've always been a you know advocate of visual storytelling. 75% of the story should be understandable by looking at the pictures, but I've really had to push that and and strip that script down real thin to get all of the narrative and, and the, the sort of juice that Neil puts in, into his prose to get that in there too. But if you compare it to American Gods, which was a very dense script, God bless the letterer on that one, Rick Parker, <laughs> his work cut out. Yeah. Uh, this is a much lighter, lighter tone. And it helps too that it's, there's a lot of humor in it and it can be done visually. So that, that does remind me of the credits on the story. It's actually kind of interesting. I think it's actually unique from any other comic book that I've seen before. Neil Gaiman is credited with uh, story and words, but you're credited with script and layouts. Yes. Now, to me, scripts sounds like the same thing as story and words. So how's that differentiated um, exactly? Well, I think it's just an acknowledgement that my script is using his words. Not, for an example, say some of Roy Thomas's adaptations of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. 
those it was the Howard stories, but Roy's script. I mean, he was doing major rewriting and and adding to it. But in this, I'm using his words, although there there are a number of places where, because of of various reasons, pairing the script, the original prose down, I've had to write some, you know, things myself, especially in crowd scenes where everyone is talking at the same time. Or if he has, and I've done this forever in adapting any other author's work, if they're talking about what the the character is saying, instead of actually having them say it, I have them say it, you know, in a word balloon. Thor was confused. I'll have him say, I'm confused. It's mm-hmm. that sort of, just it's a slight way of making it come alive on the page more. It's, it, you have a feeling of, of engagement if you are seeing the person saying something rather than the prose telling you the person is saying that. So uh, I, I tread lightly when I write original script for this. I try not to do too much of it so that it's not noticeable. <laughs> it's not Neil's script. I mean, you have an interesting challenge. You're writing an, adapt, an ab- adaptation of a novel that I believe is an adaptation of the original mythology itself. He's not creating new mythology. Is that correct? Right. It's his retelling of it. You know, so all, all the things that people say are, of course, Neil's original prose. But yes, the stories like Greek mythology or you know Scandinavian Norse mythology. Yes, those are ancient tales. He's he has a glossary, you know, in in the novel. If if you uh, check that out of of his sources and which sources he used for particular stories. So it is, yes, it's a retelling of a retelling. I've said the same thing when I did, you know, I've adapted a number of operas into the graphic story form, and one was Salome. It was uh, Richard Strauss's opera, but his opera was an adaptation of Oscar Wilde's play, Salome. So I worked with Strauss's libretto, which cut Wild Wild's prose down by about 50%. So I was doing an adaptation of an adaptation while using the music at the same time for inspiration. So yeah, these go through multiple levels sometimes, storytelling levels before they get to the graphic story page. And one thing I really do love that it is North mythology, which I do find seems to be on the whole a little less appreciated, it feels like at times, than the Greek or Egyptian mythology. Do that, you, would you agree with that? I, yes, I think I would. I think probably in the last half century, at least through comics, we're more aware of Norse mythology, if only because of you know Marvel's Thor and, and Jack Kirby's delving into all of that. I still remember as a kid reading you know Thor monthly, and this was in the 60s when Kirby was you know at his peak, and I had never been exposed to Norse mythology. So I had no real, you know, connection except what I was reading through Kirby. But there was the end of one story with Odin, just a small panel, Odin standing there, I think next to this giant sword and talking about saying Ragnarok. And it said like next issue Ragnarok. And just that gave me chills somehow, the sound of that, of that word. So, uh, yeah, I think we have more appreciation of it now than we have. But yes, Greek mythology is certainly in Western art been more prevalent. Now, what, what do you think that is? Why do I think that is? I have 
I just have to say flat out, I have no idea why that is, why Greek mythology has been more important. I think, well, let me fish around because of Greek philosophy has had and 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 art through through especially through playwrights has had a greater effect on western civilization as a whole all across europe and the americas than uh, norse mythology has that norse mythology was stories but it wasn't connected with a broad intellectual movement like the greek philosophers which have so impacted the civilization and perhaps it's because of that connection they seem to work together. We're aware of it more than we would be like Norse mythology or like Russian fairy tales or Far Eastern fairy tales. Greek is just more Western. Now, now correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like Norse mythology is also a little bit more maybe zany than Greek mythology is because stories do feel a little bit more like they're a little more out there, even for Greek, which is a little out there at times too. I didn't catch that word you said, that, that first word. It's uh, more- uh, zany. Oh, zany. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I'm no expert on, on Greek mythology. Uh, a lot of those are pretty crazy stories, too. But yeah, the Norse mythology seems very particular. Maybe there's something more universal about Greek mythology. And Norse mythology seems more geographic, more to one location or one ethnic, racial, nationalistic group, you know, way up north. And it just seems to be locked into the north. Maybe not as universal, but again, I'm just theorizing here. Well, well, like I said, though, I do find it great. It's great that you're doing those comic books because for someone like me as well, who is not as well versed as in Norse mythology as I am um, in Greek mythology, I, I'm, I'm an English teacher and I have not had the opportunity to read a lot of the original uh, Norse myth- uh, myths, mm-hmm. but I feel like I'm learning through those, the comic book and getting appreciation for it. Well, it's, it's manifested itself in any number of ways even though we're not as always aware of it. I mean, you know, I, I did a, a, this enormous adaptation of Wagner's Ring of the Nibelung 20 years ago that I worked on for five years. There was a huge, you know, 400 pages. And all of that came from also Norse mythology. We had, it was Wotan, who's Odin, and a character Fro, who's Thor. We had Loki was in it. And a, a lot of cross-pollination there. So in some ways, a number of situations in doing this, I've done it before. <laughs> I mean, I've had another permutation of this uh, set of stories and history uh, that there's a lot of crossover there, a lot of the same stories. And of course, the Ring of the Nibelung ends with Götterdammerung, and this Norse mythology ends with Ragnarok, pretty much it's the end of the world again. I was just texting a friend of mine that I, I work uh, on on a certain day, I said, I'm working on the end of the world again. (laughs) (laughs) One of the artists we contacted early on was Walt Simonson, because he had done uh, a four-page story in American Gods that was sort of a Norse mythological background. But he bowed out because, of course, he's working on the same thing. (laughs) Is is there any, any kind of rivalry between what you guys are doing and what Walt Simonson's doing? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's a good compare and contrast, ultimately. We can take the two bodies of work and show how they're similar and how they differ. I think, well, I really don't know. Walt's, it's his, it's his take, you know, and, and this is Neil's and 11 different artists' take on, on the stories in the series. Well, like I said, I love the visuals so much, especially your first chapter, 
the visuals of the Well of Erd, which I thought was just brilliant looking in, in the panels that you, you drew it. Are we going to be revisiting the Well of Erd at all? Oh, yes, yes. There's a scene in, in Ragnarok where after the gods are woken by the Heimdall's horn, they travel to the Well of Erd for counsel before they head to the plain uh, of Vidgard for the, the final battle of all things. So we see them again. We see that giant tree. I, just this past Sunday, I did its almost two-thirds page panel of the tree. Oh, shoot. Turn that <laughs> off. Sorry. It's not uh, no worries, sir. <laughs> it's no worries. So I got to do that tree again. And then later on, there is a, an epilogue to all of this after it's all washed away and then the world starts again. A, a, a couple, a sort of Adam and Eve couple who've been hiding in that tree at the Well of Erd e- emerge and to repopulate the world. So I've been able to go back to that tree several times now. Is there a locale beyond Erd that you love that that has stood out to you as being a favorite location for yourself to um, draw or write? Well, the, the battlefield at Vidgard, what I've done since there isn't, you know, Neil covers sort of a one by one, how Thor, you know, heads into this battle and meets his death, how uh, Fry dies, how Odin dies, all of these characters one by one, how they meet their end at Ragnarok. So it isn't like you are doing a through line narrative of everyone talking and coming back and forth. It's almost like a Hal Foster Prince Valiant series of vignettes, of pictures. I was more concerned with showing the scope and enormity of the battlefield rather than, you know, close-up combat, although there is some of that. So I've been drawing piles of bodies, (laughs) just all intertwined in rivers of blood. And while the main characters may be these little tiny figures on the horizon, fighting in the midst of this, you know, planes of, of characters just, uh, well, just dead. It's actually been, uh, you know, it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> just as a, a challenge of drawing great masses of bodies entwined. That's been a challenge. Uh, and, and also, the, I was actually using some reference material from the Ring of the Nibelung. I had a friend who, back then, there were the giants Fasolt and Fafner, in the ring, and a friend of mine posed for the Giants. He's a big man in all senses. He's tall and enormous. And so at one point, he he was lying uh, face down on the floor. One of the Giants murders the other one. So I still had those photographs, and there are Giants in this. You know, it's the the sons of Muspel that are all flame, and the Giants, and and the, the men from hell, the the disgraced warriors, all of this. So I I needed a giant in one of these piles of bodies. I wanted the variety of things, not just everyone the same size. So I pulled that picture to look at. And Loki is actually walking across him, uh, standing on his neck as he heads towards Heimdall for the final battle. And with a man of that size and weight, the neck gets really huge. And as 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 Loki is walking across him, I was saying, thank you for that neck fat. <laughs> <It's> just great. <laughs> I love it. So I mean, it, that, that's, uh, but it's, but, uh, 
it's like I said, I started around October 4th, worked seven days a week. You get into a real rhythm. I went after this, you know, like a rat terrier every day. <laughs> and that builds on itself. You, you start doing better work when you're just doing it all the time. Although it gets difficult to go to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> At least for an hour, I would lie there and just, and I was dreaming last night of drawing pictures, but I think I'll get over that hopefully in the next week or two. <laughs> <laughs> so do you find yourself dreaming about what you're going to write the next day? Well, or yes, actually, or <laughs> what I did the day before. I mean, if you've ever driven for eight hours and then you lie down and all you can see is the road coming towards you, that's the way it is with the pictures because I worked for an hour before bedtime. And then I close my eyes and I just see the drawings that I've done. So for, for those of us who are not great artists, I, it, it sounds like it, is it as, it doesn't sound like as romantic as a profession perhaps as people think it is maybe from on the outside. Well, I think the only way it could be romantic is if you are so good, you can draw like a cow gives milk, you know, without, uh, without torturing yourself over anything, getting it right. Uh, well, perfect example. I, Sunday, I was virtually finished. Sunday night, I, I did that, finished inking that big drawing of the two characters coming out of the, the tree at the well of Erd. I only had a third of a page left to do from way back, a certain page where Fenrir, the wolf, has been released from the earth. The shackles are broken and he's roaming the earth and everything uh, that encounters him, you know, goes in flames and dies. The drawing I had done and didn't finish, I wasn't happy with. I just sliced it off the page and I said, I'll get back to that later. So I only had that third of a page left to do of a wolf amidst destruction and flames. You would think, I mean, that's right up my alley. It took me three days to do it. Oh, wow. I don't know why. I think it was because I knew I was finished with this project. And then that one single drawing just seemed so enormous to do, to try to, you know, I just stiffened up. And it just it took forever to work things out, which I did. And I, like I say, I finished it a couple hours ago. I think it's good. <laughs> but I froze. I froze up. And so, yeah, three days to do that one. But now I am done. Now, is it because, I mean, the, the, the fight of Ragnarok is, is in, the, in the imagination, is so epic in, in the minds of readers, in the minds of just the word itself does come yeah. with a certain epicness to it. Is that the challenge of trying to equal the, 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 what the imagination of that word kind of brings? Well, yes. You, 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 you try to get that sense of scope and, and enormity which is why on those battlefield scenes, I uh, focused so much on the results of the fighting. I mean, I have a couple enormous scenes, like in the end of issue 17, what, this is an aside, but one of the challenges of doing these things as a serialized series that will be ultimately collected as a single volume is that I think it's incumbent upon you as someone doing the adaptation to have something at the end of each issue that feels like a cliffhanger or something that asks a question or something curious, propels you to the next issue, which when it's collected should disappear because it's just going to flow naturally into that next page. Mm. You know, we don't do big, big splash pages on every issue if it's coming in on the middle of a story. 
So anyway, at the end of 17 was, and then the battle began. So it's two thirds of a page of all the sort of demons from hell advancing, the giants, the everyone I talked about earlier heading forward. And then the first page of issue 18 is Vota or Odin and Thor and all of you know, the gods of, of Asgard charging forward. So those were the, the, the one, the two-thirds of a page in issue 17 took days to do, to work out. It's, there's so many characters and so much happening, and you want the feel of it being, you know, maybe extending miles behind. You know, it's just not a, a bunch of characters right in your face, but it has to have a, a feeling of a lot that you're not seeing. That takes a long time to compositionally work out. A lot of tracing paper, trying things out and moving it around. Sometimes you get, a happened a number of times, you know, there's a phrase, kill your darlings. I'll have a whole section completely drawn that works as that little bit. And then mm. something else happens and you realize it's in the way and it's got to go to make way for something else. And that, I'm getting better at it. I'm almost <laughs> 70 and I'm still, I'm getting better at it <laughs> of, of saying, you have to go. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're a nice tree <laughs> by yourself. You're a lovely tree. You're in the way. And then the eraser comes out and there it goes. Now, is there any chance that once these 18 issues are complete, that you're going to have maybe a few side issues that you'll come out to cover anything that you miss because of the, the overall storyline? Not that I know of. <laughs> I'm not thinking that far ahead. I've got some projects lined up for when I'm finished uh, with this. I, and like I say, I, I still have seven covers to do, and that's going to take me a couple months. And then I, I will move on. Altogether, this will be about a 20-month-long project. I started oh, wow. in July of last year, and and here we are in December. So and that's 17 months so 18, 19, 20 months altogether for it. Well, I'll, I'll make a formal request on, 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 <laughs> to uh, anything that's missed to definitely uh, go back and cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can let us know if there is. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff I, I do have to cut, but it's more in, in just the, the, not the events of this. All the events are there. That's not that difficult. And like with American Gods, we had 600 pages to do a 525-page novel. But there was some dense writing in that novel and, and events that, things that had to go in for the story to be understood, you know, but they were just yeah. parts of the puzzle. Uh, but at the same time, there were a lot of asides that were funny that you could cut. But so much of the, I think, of the enjoyment of reading it were those just the the humorous asides, little quirky bits. It's the, the 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 spice, the flavor in it, the salt. You want to preserve as much of that as you can because it's what gives it its its unique gamian flavor. <laughs> now, is it one reason why you're finishing the work so far before the actual issues get released? Is because it allows you to go back and think in issue five, six, seven, or eight. I need to make these changes now because of what decided had to happen in 15, 16, 17, or are the issues already locked those earlier ones and they're already done. And, you know, it's just a process. Well, uh, yes, pretty much. 
that one of the reasons we work so far ahead is because you never know when a single artist is going to fall back and behind. We, everyone's been, been really good, but we wanted to get it, everything to the artists as soon as possible so they weren't rushed. You know, the first arc is completely done, the first six issues. And the second arc, there's still several issues, I think three issues that are in, not complete yet, but, you know, in the works. And, and then the third arc, I'm ahead of everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I finished my story. Colleen Duran is doing The Death of Balder, and Galen Showman is doing The Last Days of Loki. And he's gotten started on his, and, and he'll finish it as soon as he finishes the lettering. But the only one, only one change, it was just recently on Matt Horak's story, that he's doing issues seven and eight, first two issues of the second arc. And I realized at one point, there's a, it's how, it's called the Mead of, of Poets. And it's about the mead that, that, that keeps getting stolen because everyone wants this magical mead. And once you drink it, you're a poet. You make the most amazing stories and tell the sagas and make them up in the imagination. And it, it's about the gods stealing it from someone who stole it from someone else. So Odin, in a disguise as a giant, goes into, tricks his way into where it's locked up. And there are three giant vats of the mead. And he is let in by the daughter of the, the, this giant who has guarded it and he's tricked her, seduced her. And as soon as she lets him in for one tiny, tiny little sip, he takes all three vats and drinks them lickety-split. Yeah. <laughs> and now, and so that's three panels of yeah. drinking this one, that one, the next. And then she screams, traitor, and rushes at him, and he runs out of the room and locks the door and locks her in there. Well, I had <laughs> written a line of text for each of those panels and then her, then the Neil's line of saying how she rushed at him, but he was too quick and ran out. Well, the finished colored artwork was done by Laverne. He'd done the coloring. Matt had finished his art. And I read that, and I realized that those bits of text slowed it down so that you're wondering, left wondering, what's she doing while he is drinking these three vats? Mm. And it feels slowed down because you have to read that text. So I asked Editor Daniel, is it too late to put in sound effects and drop text? Well, since it was a digital thing, it wasn't. So I dropped all that text, and I got Galen to do three sound effects. It was glug, gulp, and slurp, <laughs> and, and even the little text that says how she ran at him. So all that text is gone, and all you have now is glug, glug gulp, and slurp, traitor, and then... <laughs> could chunk as he, or clink, whatever, as he locks the door. So now you read it really fast. It just goes by. And it, it, it makes it look like she's reacting immediately as he super fast drinks all these things. Mm. Sometimes you don't know until you actually see it on the printed page. A number of times, as spare as I've made this, I look at it, I think, you know, I could probably drop that text too. Mm. If anything, I put in more text than is needed on my first rough draft. And then I, when I get it on the page, I pare that down even farther. So you're definitely a minimalist when it comes to writing, I would imagine. Well, it, it depends. It depends on the situation. I think there's also something to be said for dense 
text. I mean, I look at some old comic books now and can't believe how much text is on them. You look at the EC comics, and sometimes there is more text in the panel than picture. And I think there are, there are, there's an argument to be made for that. I know some people complain now that there's, you're, you're through the comic in, in a couple of minutes. Mm. Because you're not having to read a lot of text. Uh, some text will describe a whole series of events, and then the picture illustrates the last thing that the picture says, like in the EC comics. You read some of those captions about how much is going on in the caption that is not visualized. And I tend to, like a silent film director, want to visualize everything. Mm. So it's, I don't think it's cut and dried about you know, one way to do it. I had, like I said, a lot more text in American Gods, and it's some beautiful writing. If we didn't have that caveat on this of use just 20% of the text, I would have used more. But like I say, it was a challenge to to strip it down and, and tell it this way. That's kind of interesting because it does, when you watch older um, movies and TV, it does also feel like those are paced much differently than those around now. It, doesn't, it definitely feels like there's a change in how things are presented to the audience. Oh, I think so, because so many of the filmmakers uh, in their maturity might have been in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but their training was in silent film. Certainly Hitchcock is the prime example of that. To watch his, I always tell people who are learning visual storytelling, to watch his movies with the sound turned off and how much you can see, how much is told visually. So much of television is basically radio with, you know, pictures. You don't have to be in the room to watch, quote-unquote, Law and Order. It's radio for the most part. You are not, you're missing very little by not seeing the pictures. So that's, it's a completely different way of storytelling, how you decide what to show. And, you know, I, I love how you point out the interconnectedness across the different mediums. And, and I think that's really important for writers and artists to keep in mind that an eye and a training in one does help you in all the others. Oh, absolutely. I think one advantage of the, the so-called Marvel method working with a synopsis as opposed to DC Comics at the time where you were given a full script is that the artist is then trained by force of circumstance to tell that story visually. And then, of course, the, the writer comes in and, and, and fills out the script. Now, sometimes it can be so generic that I, I had the uh, experience early on, like in an Ant-Man story, the writer saying pages uh, 12 to 15, they fight. <laughs> <laughs> and then working with Don McGregor, who loved uh, uh, you know, stuntmen and action films, that was the part of the synopsis he would have down to, he does this, and then she does this, and then they, they do this, and they come around and throw. The, he had that all worked out. Other times, I was, had you know, the, the freedom to just to visualize that there was one page with an avalanche in Kill Raven where two characters are, are killed to the of the major characters in the story. And I worked that out, the cross-cutting between the characters. And Don saw that, and he's a verbose writer. 
he wrote two words, I think, for the entire page because <laughs> it was the story was told, and it had to be happened fast, just like I was saying with drinking the mead of the the three vats. An avalanche happens like that, and they are there's no escape from it, and bang, pow, there it is. So in that instance, he just stood back and let the pictures tell the story. You know, that must be a great testament to your skill as an artist. I was reading a Absolute Sandman volume, I think it was three. And in the back of the uh, volume, it has a feature of the script for Ramadan, the story that you did the artwork for in yes. the Sandman story. And there's a quote, um, not the, this won't be an exact quote, but a, a quote from Neil Gaiman that basically remarked that instead of with every other artist, he would give a full script to, he literally with you did not. He just basically gave you the words and allowed you to create the panel, which was something he's never really done before because how good you were as an artist. Well, I asked him for that because I love doing adaptations, even of a full script, you're still doing an adaptation. But I said, you know, put in every word you want in there and any sort of stage directions that might be relevant. And uh, let me tell your story. I've always said there's the story being told and there's the telling of the story. And the writer is the story being told and the person who's visualizing it is telling their story. Okay. And initially he said, well, I'll do that until Morpheus Sandman makes his appearance, which is about halfway through, and then I'll write a full script. I said, okay. I send him those first 15 or 16 pages, and he said, oh, okay, and then just did the <laughs> same thing again, wrote the words. And, and that's the fun part to me. I was approached a number of years ago about the possibility of working with Alan Moore. And I thought, well, you don't turn that opportunity down. I mean, you know, you're going to have a script that's, that's amazing. But I also know that his scripts are, you know, written down to what is on the table in the background. And nothing came of it. He suggested me for Promethea. And I countered with, I'd rather do a sort of a, something like a Doctor Strange, you know, a, a story of a mystic kind. And the whole thing sort of withered away. And, and in retrospect, I thought, what a relief, because it would have been not fun for me as an artist and what I like to do to follow the, uh, a script that tight. Now, he always said that the artist could, you know, here's a suggestion. You can ignore it if you want, but it's so well written. How could you ignore it? So I just feel a lot freer and freer to do better work if I have problems to solve in turning this into a visual structure, turning pure prose into a visual structure. So when you were working on Ramadan, was that your first collaboration with Neil Gaiman? Yes. So yeah. he, what a way to start. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you did, you won an, if I remember correctly, you won an award. Was it the, an Eisner award? I think for Sam and 50, is that correct? I don't recall. I should, but I don't, I think it was recognized, but I forget in, in, in what category. Cause yeah, because I, 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 um, in my research before the interview, I recognized, I noticed that, I know you won Kirby Awards for Night Music, and I wrote, you had Eisner Awards for Eric Stormbringer and Salmon 50. Oh, okay. So, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember what it, the award was for exactly, but, I mean, it must have been, I mean, I guess it was a testament to how good the work was. I mean, you not only did you earn the trust of Neil Gaiman moving further, but you obviously was an award winner, so everyone recognized how great it was. <laughs> well, Neil has said before, you know, he, he casts artists 
as to you know what they their abilities and their their strengths. At a year before, I had done about fifteen or sixteen illustrations to a prose book called *The Thief of Baghdad*. The book was written in 1926. It was probably the first novelization of a movie. It was the Douglas Fairbanks Senior Thief of Baghdad, and then the book came out. Anyway, Neil had seen that and said to me on the phone, I want you to do what you did in The Thief of Baghdad, only more so. I said, okay. <laughs> uh, and he said, you know, I thought of you, you'd be perfect for this. Now, if I had a genie in it, I would ask Charles Vess. And of course, the artist in me is saying, oh, I could do a genie. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, that that's sort of how that that came about. And But even with a fully written script, and when we did Death and Venice together, in Endless Nights, he wrote a full script for that, panel this, panel that. And sometimes I followed that. And in other times, there was one page he had four panels, and I did 14. Because sometimes the the prose is so rich, I will look at it, I'll look at a a paragraph or, or a single sentence and think, I could get three pages out of this. So, you know, I, I, I felt perfectly free in the service of the story, not changing anything, but in the service of the story, adding panels and, and changing the, 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 the telling of the story. Yeah, Gaiman also, Neil Gaiman also put in that um, script at the end of that volume, a quote that you said, you said, after looking, listen to his words, you said, your, your head is, is all full of pictures. What was it about the, the idea that so immediately grabbed you in that way? And also, because you're an, you're an artist, do you tend to put everything in the form of maybe artwork for your, like and how you would do the artwork for when you read a story or hear a story? Oh, well, if, if, if someone sends me a script or a story asking me if I would be interested in adapting it, it's murder for me to read it. If I'm just reading a story, I pick up a story to read for my own pleasure, it's just, that's fine. I read the story. If I'm thinking that I might be adapting this, doing the drawings for it, I can't read it without already thinking, how am I going to do this? I mean, this scene, this is impossible, this scene. It just means I haven't solved the problem yet. But it becomes very difficult to just read it for pleasure because I'm already thinking about how to solve the challenge, the visual challenges of bringing things that don't have pictures in them sometimes and finding how you're going to show this without just stating things. So I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but it can be difficult to read knowing that I might be doing something with it. Yeah, it definitely answers my question. Also, another aspect of um, Salmon Ramadan that I thought was phenomenal that you did is that the you created such a good contrast between kind of like a very surreal beauty of the majority of the story and the very last page. Oh, Oh, can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. And the last page of issue 50, which is very, which is obviously much darker, much more grim and somber. Yes. yes. So my question, did you intentionally create that contrast or was it, the first, was it just a focus on the beauty of, of you know, the, the, the world in the first beginning? Or were you intentionally trying to show the stark contrast in the, in, in the emotion of going from the beauty of the city to basically it being rubble? Oh, very intentional. Very, as a matter of fact, I didn't go far enough. We had the, you know, the, the, the fairy tale Baghdad for 33 pages or how many. And then, you know, he kind of, there's a two page section where he wakes up and it's a very mundane, but still ancient 
Baghdad. The palace is just sort of ordinary. And then you turn the page and you're in present day Baghdad. And a lot of that, certainly the final panel was almost photorealistic of, of, of rubble. And I thought afterwards, even the faces could have been more realistic. They're, they're still slightly fairy tale cartoony, the little boy. And I, I should have gone even farther with that. But yes, it was very, very deliberate. There's, there's a Fritz Lang film, one of my favorites called Scarlet Street with Edward G. Robinson. And it has like a triple ending that you think the movie is over and then you see something else that makes it even bleaker. And then there's something else that's even bleaker than that. And that's one of the things that I liked about Ramadan was that Neil had done that. Saying the curtain comes down and then another curtain and then another curtain. And that's the unique structure of that story. And one of the reasons I like it so much. This is the best original script I've ever been given. And as the artist and someone who does sound like they're a bit of a perfectionist, would that be a, a, a correct description of you? Um, yeah, I'll beat myself up a lot. <laughs> like I did three days working on this last panel yeah. um, uh, to get it because, you know, you look at it afterwards and you, you tend to see your mistakes and things that could have been done better. So, yeah. Are, are, are you able to go back and read your older work and just enjoy it? Yes. Yeah. It depends on the mood. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> on, you know, who's sitting on the throne today, the person, the one that's petting you or the one that's with the scourge. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I can see, you know, things that are uh, fall short could be, could be better. And then other times I'll, I'll look at something and yeah, that's, that's nice. You know, uh, stop beating, beating up that kid. You know, <laughs> I mean, with your collaboration with Neil Gaiman must have been, like I said, with Ramadan was extremely fruitful because since that time, you, you worked on Murder Mysteries, uh, Sandman Dream Hunters, yeah. a chapter of Endless Nights. Was it about the Sandman universe that, just wants to, that you keep wanting to go back to? Well, it's, it's, to me, it's just the, the, the quality of the writing. And with Dream Hunters and Ramadan, they're both set in worlds that, that appeal to me visually. Not the, the modern world. I've delved into it on occasion, like in the Death in Venice in Endless or Clive Barker's Human Remains. But I love the, just the, 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 the fancy of ancient cultures, especially ones where you can really let your imagination go. Because like in, in, in Baghdad of, of, of Ramadan, the whole point was that it never really existed. So you can make it as florid and over the top as you want. In Dream Hunters, it was set in ancient Japan. I couldn't, I didn't have quite that wiggle room. I, I bought a shelf of books of Japanese architecture and, and costumes and artwork to have a flavor of that in it. There was still a, a lot of, of room to play with that. So it's more the what the the visual world it is that you that you have to play with. I, I loved doing American Gods because I didn't have to draw it. Mm. Uh, you know, a, a story is a story to me. I could do a war story or a western as far as layouts, a script and layouts and design 
goes. But drawing it, so much of American Gods, and God bless Scott Hampton, <laughs> <for> like <laughs> 530 pages out of 600 that he had to draw for that book. So much of it is set in restaurants and cheap motels and interiors of cars. And I remember at one point, I'm running out of ways of staging conversations in cars here. <laughs> <laughs> so you look for a chance to look out the window for in some way that the environment around it is, is commenting on what they're talking about, such as driving into a snowstorm and it comes into a part of the conversation where it's talking about he doesn't know uh, what's happening or it's about confusion. I, I forget the particulars of it, but having that snow come right at you in the light of the headlights was a perfect metaphor for what was happening. So you're always looking for things like that to take an ordinary conversation of people just sitting in a, in a location and finding a visual way to comment on it. But again, for, for 600 pages, I would not want to, want to have had to draw that story. The Norse mythology is different. I was really happy to delve into that because I'm not constrained by automobiles and <laughs> all of that. Now, you, you've had the opportunity, obviously you've done uh, writing, you've been an artist, a collaborator, a script, and you also created your own comic book series for a while from, from night, night Music Series for Eclipse. Yes. Do you have a preference of between doing, do you, do you prefer the independence of creating your own work? Do you, do you enjoy the collaboration more? Well, I like either collaboration or working with pre-existing material, like I'm doing the, the fairy tales of Oscar Wilde. Collaboration is, is a funny term. I mean, on, in most of these, with all of my Neil Gaiman projects, there are only two that were original in that, I mean, they were written for comics. Well, not even, yeah, yes, uh, The Endless and, and Ramadan. Those were original scripts. All the other ones I've done, I have existed already as, as short stories or novels, or in the case of murder mysteries, it was both a short story and a radio play. He sent me a tape of the radio play adaptation that he did, and there were things in that that weren't in the prose story. So there are things in the graphic novel adaptation that aren't in the story, but are in the radio play, sound effects and such. So... I don't, a, a collaboration, like working with, with Don McGregor was a collaboration. You know, I, he would do a synopsis. I would do the artwork. He would add the, the, the script. I would then do the inking. We're, we're sort of knocking the, the ball back and forth. With Neil in these stories, he gives them to me, and, and then I, I just do it. I mean, if I have a question about the text, I'll send him a message about something and he'll get back to me. But it's, I'm pretty much on my own to do this. And he trusts me with that as that, that started our whole collaboration and that uh, I've mentioned this before, but, and checked with him. It's a true memory. <laughs> uh, when we were first talking about Ramadan, I had just done an adaptation of uh, Rudyard Kipling's Red Dog for Eclipse, one of the Jungle Book stories. And he saw that and he said he thought it was one of the finest adaptations he'd seen you know, from prose to, to graphic story. And because of that, he was aware early on, I know how to do that. So he has trusted me with these projects that I will, you know, be faithful to the source while being able to come up with visual solutions 
that moved beyond the pros. So based on that collaboration, now that you're on the other side with North, uh, North Mythology, you're working with, like I said, as we mentioned earlier, guys like Jerry Ordway, Colleen Dorian, Mike Mendoza, these are obviously also huge names in their own right. Is there ever an issue of ego or, or a time where there is conflict on what they want? Because obviously, I'm assuming they're very used to their own style and their own way of doing things, and obviously, it may conflict with yours. Does that has that exist? Did that exist at all with any of them, or was it pretty smooth sailing? Uh, it sailing? was smooth sailing. There hasn't been any problem. My attitude is. Once I, because I'm an artist myself, I understand that you don't want someone coming in and micromanaging. Once I do those layouts, it's in their hands and I, you know, I don't interfere. There have been a lot of questions back and forth. Has this character been designed or, you know, all of that. But I, as hands off as possible, I think in all of the, the pages of American Gods, I had one or two concerns where I said, no, you've missed the, the visual point here of the storytelling, or you've, or simple, it's just, you've made a mistake. This, it's this person that's talking, not the other. And that's not even an aesthetic consideration. It's just like, this is the wrong guy here. It's not a question of uh, the quality of the drawing, but uh, yeah, I just pretty much, it's, it's their story once I've let it go. And I, it's, it's not difficult to do that in that my blueprint, it, it gets to them pretty much set in stone. You know, the panel borders are ruled, the lettering is on the page. Now, some of them are doing overlays, and that, that was a technical uh, problem we had to deal with. Like Jill Thompson does watercolor. Now, you can't do watercolor on a page with word balloons because watercolor is just a lot more slapdash. You, you would have to, you know, put frisket paper or, you know, over all the word balloons so that you didn't go, you know, over into it. Right. So that had those, those pages had to be scanned and then laid in on top of her artwork. And so you, she had to be exact as to where the panel borders were lined up with the, the line panel borders on the pages or, or everything would be out of register. So that was a little difficult. Two or three people have not done their artwork on the original paper and lettering uh, because they're either working on computer or they're doing painting. And that's just a different, uh, little more complex thing to do there. So there've been technical challenges, but again, as I I was trying to to say in, in doing my layouts, pretty much everything I have there is there and all they have, you know, they do the pictures and it can change a lot. They might change the, the composition, but I've seen a number of things where they've added that I thought, oh, that's great. You know, it's just a little thing from Peter Kowalski in the third issue, the, the guy who's, who's, who's digging in the dirt super fast, who's a secret giant, and the gods are starting to worry about how fast he's working. Well, there was a close-up of them. Peter had the sort of dirt kind of falling around them, like almost like snow. It was just a little detail he added that I hadn't put in there, hadn't thought of. So that, that was good thinking. Matt Horak did a number of things like that, not changing anything, but adding to it and making the p- picture richer. And, and that's always fun to see when that happens. And uh, the other thing I thought is fantastic for his collaborations with you as well is that you've also are collaborating uh, with a colorist that you used before in the Spectre series, 
uh, Laverne, is it Laverne Kin- Kinder Zierski? <laughs> Kinderski. Kinderski. I've been working with Laverne for just about 30 years now. And it's wonderful working with him. Originally starting, we didn't have, before computers and JPEGs and email, he would, we would talk about the coloring over the phone and then he would make, make copies of the coloring and mail them to me. I'd get these big envelopes with all the pages with full coloring, and then I'd make notes on that. We'd talk on the phone again. Now he sends JPEGs if I want changes. And I've recommended him for a number of artists on almost all the artists that aren't doing their own coloring on the Norse mythology book. Uh, Laverne is doing the coloring. He did a beautiful job on issue three on Piotr Kowalski. And the only other one... uh, Mike Mignola used Dave Stewart on his six-page story in the first issue. And I think that's the only other colorist who's not the artist himself that was, has been working on the series. So what was it about his work that you think complements yours so well? Well, he's great to work with. When I originally decided I might want to work with a colorist and Laverne uh, was interested in doing it, I made sure he had copies of everything I had done that I had colored myself, which there was about a 12-year period where I was coloring all my own work. And so he was following very closely, initially, my own coloring. And we still have certain palettes, a certain nighttime palette that I developed on, on the Jungle Book stories that we still use. But of course, in over these years, we've branched out and he comes up with all of these different palettes to work with. And we talk it over page by page, sometimes panel by panel, what I'm hoping for, looking for, the, the mood of the piece. And then he does it. And if there are any uh, corrections or misunderstandings, thank God for the computer, you're not <laughs> asking someone to repaint something. It's not right, right. difficult to just switch something over to something else. Well, like, like, like I said, the, the work on Norse mythology, I'm, I'm, I, like I said, I've loved it. I've been, I bought the th- first three issues so far, and I'll buy the next ones. The, the art is wonderful. The, the script is wonderful. The coloring is wonderful. What, what do you have next that you work on after this? I am finally going to get to the final Oscar Wilde fairy tale, which I've had laid out for over 25 years oh, wow. in, in the drawer. You know, there, there are nine fairy tales, and I started working on them in 1991. The last one, The Happy Prince, came out about six years ago, I think, about six years. And the, it's The Fisherman and His Soul, which is the cream of the crop of the nine fairy tales. And it, it's 44 pages Uh, All of the other fairy tales are either about 15 or 30 pages, but this is a big one. And I, it's always been something else I needed, I had to do, or it was in the way or, and it's lettered and ready to go. So I'm hoping when I finish this to get to that. And there's a a couple, I have one more opera I want to do. I, I have these goals. One is, you know, to do 12 operas at one point to do 12 Neil Gaiman uh, stories and another was to do the three Jungle Book stories. Anyway, this, I'll, I'll finish this cycle of the Oscar Wilde and then the one more opera I've done, 11. And I'm looking at the uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the, the Nightingale, which is also an opera by Stravinsky. So it might be another adaptation of an adaptation. I'm going to do a thing where I combine the prose of the fairy tale with the presentation of the way it's done in the opera. It's a Chinese fairy tale, and I've never done Chinese before. So I've done the Middle East 
in Ramadan in Japan, ancient Japan. So it would be like a 30-page, not a huge piece of work. I'm approaching the 50-year mark here. I'm about, <laughs> you know, uh, let's see, four, it's 15 months out from the 50. Uh, it started in the spring of 72. So we're getting really close to that, and I want to get a number of things done by that point. Just as arbitrary goal and deadline, but I don't want to go limping up to that 50-year mark right. <laughs> with some good stuff. I mean, is it? Are you choosing these operas and from different locales? You said the Middle East, also Chinese, as a way to broaden your experience, or or at least for experimental reasons. Is there something else about these different? I assume very different style of operas that are that catch your attention, your passion. Well, mostly what got it got me started on it is that I was just when I was going more independent, leaving Marvel Comics way back in the late seventies was. I just always looking for a good story to tell, something with some literary worth. And I was also an, an enormous opera fan. So and the thing about operas, just like a play, is that there's no prose. There's no narrative description. There's no, well, there are, are interior monologues, I guess, but it's all words. If you look at like the Magic Flute or Salome or the Ring of the Nibelung, everything is acted out. Uh, in very present time. There's no narrative or prose telling you anything else about the story. It's a completely different discipline from doing either any of the Neil Gaiman stories or, or Clive Barker, Kipling, Wilde, all of that. You have that text prose to work with, but not with a play or, or an opera, which is a sung play. But I, I was just looking for good stories to tell and, and things that where the, the the music would impact my interpretation, my, my layout style. It, it, it is one of your intentions as well to expose readers to, to these works that maybe they wouldn't normally have be exposed to, such as opera? No. I, I've, I've always said I'm, I'm not trying to do comics that are good for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just like I said, I'm looking for a good story. And, and I've had people tell me it's just it's the most confusing thing to hear. They'll, over the years, they say, I really liked your Ring of the Nibelung or Salome, even though I don't like opera. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's just a story. When, once you make it into a graphic art piece, yeah. it's just another story. So where can our listeners find your other, your, these adapt, adaptations? Well, NBM reprinted them 10, 15 years ago. They might still be available. There was a three-volume set that collected them. They were originally from Eclipse Comics. I mean, you could probably find them you know, in, in the big, long, white boxes at your local comic store if they have Eclipse Comics. And, and right, we are my... Good buddy and business partner Wayne Allen Harold and I are uh, doing restorations uh, of a number of them from the original coloring and are going to do our own editions of it in the not too far future. Salome, he went through the original coloring panel by panel because some of this stuff has deteriorated over the years, the nature of the coloring, which would take too long to get into, but with acetate overlays and frisket paper and airbrush, and it has, it has deteriorated somewhat. But with computers and Photoshop, it can all be brought back. And what Wayne is doing is taking the original artwork, and I still have all the original artwork for this, and rescanning that and combining that 
with the original coloring. Originally, the, the black line was an acetate overlay combined with the color underneath. But these new additions, that black line is not going to be an acetate. It is going to be from the original artwork. So it's going to be combined in a way that uh, it's going to look better than it ever did in any publication. And we've got that and Arion and Bluebeard all rescanned and restored. So we're hoping to come out with some additions of that, new additions, with a lot of extras and, and, and showing black and white pages, all of that sort of thing. Still well, a lot of stuff out there we can play with. Well, like I said, I, I definitely would look forward to seeing that work. Because like I said, your, your, your work is absolutely incredible. The, it, there, it's, it's brilliant. Well, I thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I do mean it. I mean, I, I greatly appreciate it. And I, I want to thank you so much for your time talking with me. It, it was definitely a, a lot of enjoyment for me. Well, it just flew by and it's been fun to talk about. It's good questions. Thanks a lot. No problem. Um, when you have other work coming out, I would love to have you back on the show. Sure. Be glad to. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being a fantastic guest. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. It's been fun. It, Talk indeed to you it has. Take care. Have a great night. You too. Bye. And we're back. We are back. Jeff did a great job, huh? Yeah, he did. I actually kind of wanted to be on this one, but it was, again, at a time that I was unable to be there because um, he was, uh, it just was that time I wasn't able to go. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Russell's work, but uh, now Jeff killed it. It was great. What do you want to, if, if you could be on any book, right? Any book and you're going to, ha- and you get to hire an artist and you hired P. Craig to do your work. What it could be superhero or it could be whatever you want. What would it be? Uh, I would love, man, it's a tough one. Uh, cause his, his, his style lends very well to fantasy, but yeah, I think it'd be really cool to see him do a Krypton book, a book that takes place on Krypton before the fall with all the lush greenery and not Krypton oh, as a super scientific world that there was in the Richard Donner films and became, but yeah. like the original Krypton where it's like, there's these lush greenery, lush these huge forests, these um, these fantastical mo- not monsters but creatures on the, on the planet. I think that'd be really cool because then it could tie into like Superman mythos, but also be very, very you know Krypton and, and alien world. Yeah, that would be, that would be cool, man. That would be really cool. <laughs> that guy would yeah. kill it. <laughs> you would See, you, you knew that. it right away. You're like, bam! This is what this is what it would be. What would you write well, about? I have no idea. I, th- I have to think about that one, but I think just the setting of, of old Krypton would be fun. Would it be like uh, Kal-El's great-great-grandfather? Would he even be in his in his family, or would you try to do a different family? No, I, 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 would, I would probably write outside the family. I mean, I'd probably have the, the House of L be a part of it in some way, right. but it would be a, I, mean, I would definitely have it be somebody outside of that, because there's enough stories about the House of L. And, I mean, there's a whole TV show called Krypton right now about his right. grandfather, right? But I'd probably have it something in, you know in the past of Krypton that, that kind of like leads up to what happens, you know. I like it. I like it. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, P. Craig Russell is a special guy, and he does a lot of amazing work. And hopefully, you got something out of it and you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more with people just like Russell, then go check out spoilerverse.com because over at spoilerverse.com. We have a ton of back issues for you to peruse. I mean, we're closing in on 600 episodes. Yeah. And there's just so much for you to enjoy and to check out. And I just really, really want you to go there and take a look and tell us what you think. 
Yeah, and while you're there, check out all of our other shows. We got Bridges and Geek Dems, and Funny Book Forensics, and Nerds from the Crypt, and Haphazard Adventures, and so many shows. That, and Music Point Radio. We haven't talked about them in a while. They're a great music show with Mike Peacock. And go uh, check out all those great shows and, and you know tell them how much you love them. And we got articles and reviews and previews and a bunch of cool stuff coming out on the site. Go uh, read those and leave comments. And we've got a store where you can buy a face mask, a hoodie, or a t-shirt. And look fly as hell while you do it and help support the site. And we have a public Discord at scpod.us slash Discord where you can come join us and chat with us and uh, you know talk about the shows, talk about comics, movies, whatever, and just come say hi and hang out. I like it. All right, guys. I believe that is a show. That's a show. That's a show. Someday we'll do a an episode where it's not an interview. It's just you and I right. shooting the shooting the shit. That'd be great. Which, like I told you the other day, that is an odd turn of phrase. It is an odd phrase. Yeah. I, should I think about it the other day? Who who said that? What do you what? <laughs> <laughs> like who was the first person to say that kind of phrase? I don't know. Well, we're not going to know, but I mean, it's just it's just an odd one. <laughs> I love it. All right, guys, we're out of <laughs> here. Don't forget, in an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And read some more. Just keep reading. I'm in return to the Navy. I'm shooting the breeze. I'm shooting the shit. And uh, talking about... Uh, uh, in the 40s, uh, being outside, I don't chat. We're shooting the shit out on the, the boat. Man, I would have thought it would have been like some cowboys that were like literally target practicing off a fence post and hit, shooting cow shit in the field. Yeah, it came from like uh, playing thing like bullshit or you're talking bullshit, shooting the shit, shooting the breeze. It's I just love the etymology of it. It's kind of That's cool. hilarious. Yeah, there you guys go. See you next time. If you stayed all the way to the end, right, right. Good morning. <laughs>